Hello, and welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose, and I am someone who did not go to art school, but I love to learn all about an artist I didn't know about before. Hi, and I'm Betty. I'm also someone who did not go to art school, but I have been working as a gallery guide at an art museum for the last eight years. And I also love learning about a person who technically didn't go to art school either, but was definitely trained professionally a lot in art and was definitely very professional. Today we are talking all about the artist Elisabetta Serrani. We could try to pronounce her name in the proper Italian way, but we decided that would probably be offensive. (laughs) So, Serrani was born in 1638 in what was an early modern uh, Bologna in Italy. She was and she was a Baroque painter. And she is quite unusual for many reasons, one of which is that she is a female painter from the early 1600s that we know about and we're talking about right now. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because I actually I feel I feel very ashamed that I, I actually personally never knew about her until maybe like three weeks ago. But she is quite well known and probably is one of the most famous Baroque painters. And I'm not sure if it's the most famous female Baroque painter or not, but um, at least yeah, she's very well known and was very prolific. But um, and as somebody who like did somewhat study art history a little bit, um, like electives um, in school, technically, but um, also working at an art museum for the last eight years um, where we have a lot of Italian art. But um, yeah, I just it just this person never was on my radar but I mean she is now and as soon as I saw her paintings I was like oh these are good well I never (laughs) knew who she was either but as we say in the beginning of the show I didn't go to art school so (laughs) you have more of an excuse than me (laughs) but But like you were saying like she is a really cool artist and she is even a pretty well-known artist and this is because a couple of things she was really set up for success here The main thing is that her father was a painter. And if you look at any female artist from this period, most of the time when they were able to have access to art, it's because their fathers were artists. And so they kind of were able to get trained at home. Her father was the painter uh, Giovanni Andrea Serrani, and he was part of the School of Bologna. And by all accounts, like he wasn't totally down with her learning how to paint at first and becoming a painter but she ended up studying it anyway and then she picked it up really quickly and he was like okay I guess this is happening now (laughs) yeah it is interesting how um when I was reading this I first thought he wasn't enthusiastic about her because she was a girl I mean that might have been part of the reason I'm not sure but um but then I read that apparently or this is assumed by the biographers that he was reluctant to take her on as a student because he was afraid that she would actually be better than him and make him basically look bad. And so he, I think it's assumed that was the reason. And that did happen. She she did end up basically overtaking him very quickly um, at a very young age. But it kind of worked out for him and his family because she ended up making their family so much money that I don't really think ultimately he cared <laughs> that she was way better than him. Yeah. I mean, he might have been annoyed at first, but by the time that she was 17, um, he had gout and and he was unable to paint after a certain point. Um 
And so she actually shouldered the full responsibility of supporting her family. And so she was supporting her parents and her siblings, which is really cool in a way um, and that, that she was able to do that. Not so cool that she didn't get to see the fruits of her own labor because all of that money just went to her father. Like, obviously, that sucks. Yeah, I, I did also find it interesting. I was reading that his father actually, um, throughout his lifetime as an artist, didn't actually produce a lot of paintings. So Elizabeth's father uh, took over his teacher's practice of teaching students uh, in an art studio. So his teacher's name was Guido Rini. And anyway, so so apparently it, it said that he uh, he didn't end up producing a lot of paintings of his own because he was busy teaching students. But what is ironic is that when Elisabetta took over for him, uh, she not only produced hundreds of paintings, but also taught like, I think like maybe even hundreds of students. So she so he was like, oh, I'm so busy. I have I'm teaching. I can't paint while she's like, I'm painting. I'm teaching. I'm I'm doing everything and making money for everybody. <laughs> she was a prolific. And what we haven't mentioned yet is she died very young. She died at age 27. And we'll get to how she died in a moment. But even in her short life and short career, she did over 200 paintings. She did hundreds of drawings. And it was, she was so fast at painting that people thought it had to be fake somehow, that there are other artists helping her, her father was helping her or something like that. And then she was just like, come and watch me then. And so she like hosted a session where people just watched her paint and she just like whipped up these paintings because she was so fast at it. Yeah, it, it is quite funny that she was just like, okay, I'll show you, like, take a look. Um, and yeah, according to her, her biographer, um, who was actually someone who knew her personally, um, it, it apparently, apparently she, like, it did seem like she was like definitely quite a go-getter and, you know, worked very fast, was very professional, was just getting patrons and I guess negotiating deals and stuff like that. And there was another relatively well-known Bologna painter before her. Uh, her name was Lavinia Fontana. And so she was also quite, you know, quite a good painter as well. But apparently her personality, uh, Fontana, she was quite timid and I guess, you know, like shy and didn't didn't talk to people very much. So um, I think in combination where Serrani was not only uh, a good painter, like a really, really good painter, but also just had, I guess, like an outgoing, very go-getter type of personality like that was a, a recipe for professional success i guess she certainly seemed like someone who was not afraid to take a lot of things on and to take responsibility for a, a lot of different people between caring for her family financially and then also being a teacher and she taught a cl classes of female students which makes like her lessons the first school for female artists in europe <laughs> outside of a convent setting. Not only was she um, very skilled in what she did, uh, one of the things also that was taught to her by her father um, and that she, again, developed um, a really good uh, set of 
expertise for it is painting history paintings or painting um, like she was taught, obviously, biblical history, um, Greek and Roman myths and stories, um, as well as a lot of like pagan mythology, legends and stuff like that. And so actually, um, so in art history, this is something I did learn in the past number of years. Hopefully I don't get this wrong. There is a hierarchy, at least in European like classical uh, art history, uh, there's a hierarchy of like what is the most highly regarded painting to the least regarded. So at the top is like history and religious paintings. So, you know, a historic scene or like a religious history scene like Jesus or something that's at the very top. And then it's I believe the second one is portraiture. So like portraits of important people like kings and queens. And then it's landscapes. And then at the very bottom, it's still life. And so uh, while uh, Sirani was definitely not the first female painter ever, uh, probably not even in Bologna, but a lot of female painters prior to her would have been probably relegated or pigeonholed into painting still lifes and maybe portraiture, but likely not portraits of really important people, but maybe just like somebody's baby or something. So she, she wasn't help. She, she wasn't pigeonholed, which was great for her because she was able to take on these much more lucrative and much more highly regarded paintings, like painting an altarpiece at a church or painting some really important historic scene that's put up at the town square or something which makes it that like she wasn't just known by people because if you did portraits for a family they would have portraits of their family in their house but her stuff was also in public places like churches and squares and things like that so um, that's also what differs her from other painters um, at the time and what makes that especially cool is that because she was such a trailblazer in like female artists working as history painters, she also taught her female students to do history painting. And so a lot of the women that studied under her went on to be history painters. Yeah, and I believe, uh, so when in her school, she not only like taught men and women, uh, she also would take it seemed like she took pretty much anybody because sometimes these schools may only take women if like if their fathers were painters or if they came from an art background or you know their family uh, was artsy in the first place but I think she was just like as long as you're willing to pay because she still needs to get paid um so I guess you still have to have some money um you can you can come learn here yeah I mean I'm sure that by today's standards her school would still seem horrible in whatever way but for the 1600s it was incredibly progressive that is true and and apparently at in bologna at the time um i guess maybe not just her workshop but i think the atmosphere of bologna during that period was quite progressive there was a lot more acceptance of uh, female artists or artists that didn't come from a very elite background so hence why people were willing to pay her for her work and people when they saw her work very few people if any cared about her gender or background so um and and of course like yeah she was like it did seem like she was quite a celebrity like everybody knew her and was was like oh my god she's so cool yeah well before we get into looking at a little bit of her actual work we should talk about her death (laughs) sad (laughs) um but speaking of that because so she died in 1665 it was quite sudden um and they actually suspected her maid of poisoning her because of how sudden it was um 
But they actually examined the body and discovered the damage in her insides. And so, like, modern medicine would classify this as actually she died of uh, peritonitis um, from a ruptured ulcer. So basically, from a combination of lots of different things, you can get ulcers and and a lot of people attribute the incredible stress that she was under as being the sole breadwinner for her family as well as running this whole school and like all of the pressure that was on her as a contributing factor towards her declining health that eventually led to her um, tragic early death. I'm really hoping this ulcer condition is more treatable these days because I'm like, I really hope I don't like die because of stress at work or something. I, don't, I probably don't have as much stress as she did, but still, I'm just like... That sounds terrible. Yeah, this is why they tell people to meditate and do yoga, I think. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. Um, And go to therapy um, if you have a coverage. Um, So I I think the one thing that I did read that just kind of made me, I think I, I almost laughed out loud, was her biographer was someone named Carlo, sorry, Carlo Malvasia was a historian who wrote a lot about painters in the 1600s in Bologna. So he he wrote about her. And again, he like sang her praise throughout his whole book and was like, she's like a prodigy, like a reincarnation of Guido Rini, like just totally amazing. Like I knew her and I encouraged her and everything. But then when he wrote about her death, he was like, uh, I don't know if he didn't know at the time what she died of and or if he did know and just didn't think that was correct. But he literally thought um, she died because she was 27 and not yet married. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, he was just like, yeah, she uh, she was an, at an age that's young indeed for death, but hopelessly late for marriage. So thinking that she was just so lonely because she was single at 27. And yeah, these people really thought she died because she wasn't married because people are <laughs> dumb. <laughs> So I, I'm three years past when I should have died, yeah, basically. Yeah, you're, you're a ticking time bomb, Betty. <laughs> Those ulcers are going to get you. If you don't hear from me, Quinn, one day, you know what happened. Look, I've got four <laughs> years to, to get hitched <laughs> or I'm not going to make it. Yeah, but by that, by the standards back then, I think if you're not marrying a man, it also doesn't God work. damn it. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're both screwed. So, One note related to that, though, it's actually theorized that her father deliberately prevented her from getting married. Like, he actively dissuaded suitors from, like, trying to marry her because she was the breadwinner for their family. And so if she had gotten married, then she would, you know, like, go off with her husband and be making money for him instead. And her father did not want that. And so he actually probably interceded to... Uh, make sure that she didn't get married hmm well that that makes sense um but you know which is kind of terrible of him if if really if that is what he did but um at the same time you know people gotta eat (laughs) (laughs) well she seemed very busy at you anyway there's no real indication of whether she wanted a relationship or not she was just kind of like really doing her own thing she certainly was not living an unfulfilled life, although she definitely was living an unhealthy one, which is, of course, very sad. But as you mentioned, she was incredibly beloved by her city by the time that she passed away. And her funeral was an, an, a 
gigantic event. Um, like she was a full celebrity in Bologna. Yeah, it's almost like I don't know if they had state funerals back then, but it's as if she had one. Yeah, they made a full life size sculpture of her. Yeah, <laughs> because they just were so into her. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess she joins um, the club of all of the incredible artists of history who have died at 27. I don't know how many of them had life-size statues of them made for their funeral, but, you know, 1600s Italians, they go hard. They, for sure. Uh, as we mentioned before, she she painted, yeah, like over 200 paintings and then also lots of prints and drawings. Um, and one thing I did uh, find also really like I really commend her for uh, was that she she kept very good records of her paintings and who bought them and like uh, she signed all her paintings and was just very good at documentation I think initially because she didn't want people to confuse her work with her father's or other people in her family because you know obviously her her sisters people before her they all painted so it is easy to get confused because they do paint in very similar styles although we'll mention later that she did have quite a distinct style on her own that uh, is not too difficult to miss um but i think that's good because i think one thing we spoke about before was that so many female artists had their work attributed to male artists for like hundreds of years and probably still are and um some were discovered like recently some still haven't been discovered so the fact that she was like me elisabetta <laughs> my name <laughs> like did not my father not any one else it's like perfect it's very little room for confusion <laughs> okay now let's talk about a couple of her actual specific paintings and i think we're going to start with one of the most famous topics for paintings especially of this era and one of her most famous paintings in specific which is judith and holofernes more specifically judith slaying holofernes <laughs> true uh Hers is called hers is called Judith and Holofernes. A lot of times they're called Judith slaying Holofernes because that's what it is. She is cutting his head off. <laughs> this story has been painted, I don't know, like unlimited, like infinite amount of times, it seems. Like if you just Google it, you'll find so many versions of it. And I think I don't know if this is the most famous, but probably the most well-known to me is one done by Caravaggio, who was also a Baroque painter. And he, so the one Caravaggio, Caravaggio did is, um, it's very dark and contrasty, similar to how Elisabetta, or actually hers is a lot less contrasty than Caravaggio's. But in any case, um, he, so Caravaggio's version, Judith is on the right of the painting and she's cutting like in the middle of cutting Holofernes's head off and there's blood spurting out and there's like a maid I think next to her just like looking very calmly um anyway so but in this one uh Caravaggio's one like Judith is very timid looking she's almost looks like she's not sure if she should be doing it and is like ew blood yeah she looks like she's trying not to get dirty yeah, and like she's wearing a white shirt that's like really pretty too. So and there's so many other ones, but the only other one I wanted to bring up was when I was looking at this. There is one uh, by uh, Lucas Cranach, the Elder from 1530, which is so funny. It's it's after Judith has cut off the head and the head is like on the table and she has her sword and she's dressed like she's going to. 
I want to say a gothic parade or something. She is literally, in this version, she looks like a guy on Tinder who has his picture with a fish that he's caught. <laughs> like, that's kind of what it reminds me of. She's just, like, holding his head, like, yeah, this is mine now. Yeah, so it is, like, some of these depictions are so funny. Like, Judith is, like, I, I again, a lot of the ones done by men. <laughs> like, Judith is either, like, really, like, doesn't want to get any blood on her like ill or she looks like she's dressed to go to a ball or she's drunk looking or like it's just really odd or and then there are other ones where she's like completely naked um so i love it when men do that i love when men just paint women naked for no real reason <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like i'm just i'm just naked yeah so but back to you uh elisabetta and so she did actually do two versions of this uh painting that we know of i guess uh and both the heads are completely off uh already and she's kind of has it in her hand and is about to put it in a bag in one of them and or actually maybe both of them she's about to put it in a bag uh one of them is like an outdoor depiction another one is an indoor one so and the the maid who's helping her put it in a bag is is always there but the maid um doesn't look weird i guess in in her compositions at least in my opinion um so yeah and, and judith's expression is very like calm and chill like very like oh okay i cut off the head put it in a bag um <laughs> you know which is definitely very different from from how other artists depict it yeah she's very active in, in this scene and she's also like fully centered she's much taller because she's standing tall whereas everyone else in the scene is kind of crouched down like she just has a lot of agency in this image and while and even though all depictions of this scene are like she cut a guy's head off a lot of times it gets framed in sort of more dignified more feminine ways in this really (laughs) strange kind of cognitive dissonance that these guys have got going on whereas here it feels like more of an embrace of what actually happened like and she seems like she's standing tall about it and she is totally aware of what she's doing and has no problem with it. Another painting I wanted to talk about a little bit is called Portia Wounding Her Thigh. Um, this is a depiction of a historical tale um, of this Roman woman who apparently, like, her story is that she wanted to get in on the assassination of Julius Caesar. She was like, let me stab him i'll be good i'll be good at it um and so the painting is actually depicting a scene in which she wanted to prove herself to her husband brutus um that she could be trusted as part of this that she could be trusted to keep the secret of the plot um even if she got captured and was tortured um and so in order to prove this she stabbed herself um, in order to like inflict this injury upon herself and to prove that like hey I can take this so that's very intense and hardcore um, <laughs> but this is a painting of that moment and so similar to Sarani's style like it is um, quite dark there's quite vivid colors it's almost a sensual scene in the way it's set up, which is a very interesting interpretation of it. Um, because she is sitting here, she's got this like 
luscious red dress on that's very flowy, but she's got it pulled up over her knee. She's holding this knife that she has just stabbed her thigh with. It looks like she might even stab again. She's still just gazing at her leg in the the very beginning of this wound. Um, She has no reaction on her face. She's totally just straight-faced about it. And then over on the left side of the painting, in the background, in the next room, even through a doorway, you can see a bunch of men. Presumably that is Brutus and the other senators discussing their assassination plans. Fun. Um, Meanwhile, she Portia's in this room, like, mutilating herself, but not making any sound and not showing any reaction. Yeah, it is a really weird story, but I guess it is a Roman story and I guess self-mutilation to prove you're trustworthy was a thing back then. I don't know. Um, but I, yeah, it, it is definitely a, quite a, like, it is an interesting depiction of this this particular story. Uh, and again, like, I think similar to Judith, like, Portia is just, her expression seems very, like, meh. I just stabbed my leg. Um, So I don't know if this was like um, a theme with her (laughs) Uh, or I mean, also, you know, it is a part of the story where she's saying, yeah, I can take it and I'm not going to be like, ow. So but honestly, like looking at this just makes me think like, are you depressed? (laughs) Like, Are you hurting yourself? Like, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, by a lot of modern standards, this is a pretty horrifying scene. She is harming herself. She is doing it to try to gain the trust of her husband, who should already trust her. She's also doing it in order um, to try to get involved in a significant act of violence. I mean, against Caesar, but like, you know. um, But still, there's like a lot going on here that is not exactly what we would call role model behavior. (laughs) But at the same time, like the circumstances of both her setting and the setting of Serrani painting her are so different and this exercising of agency regardless of the context of what that agency is for is still notable yeah another one that I wanted to talk about and just so people know uh, I guess the three paintings we've all brought up at this point all involve girls uh, doing something to men I think uh, or something like that. So she didn't just paint that, just just to be clear. But um, I guess the ones that were of the most interest for us uh, happens to be these types of topics. So this is actually the painting that introduced me to her. Um, it's called uh, Timoclea Pushing a Thracian Captain Into a Well. So it's a, literally, that's what it is. So it's... Um, it's a woman named Timoclea, and she is standing next to a well, uh, grabbing this guy by his legs, and then this guy is about to fall into the well from her pushing him in. And the guy's dressed in, like, armor and a cape, so he looks like he's some sort of military captain. And it's a quite contrasty painting, uh, like, a lot of contrast between light and dark, and it looks like it, there's, like, a storm behind and... It comes from Plutarch's Life of Alexander the Great, and it's one of the stories during, I think, the campaign of Alexander the Great when his forces took uh, Thebes during the Balkan campaign around 300 BC. And so the Thracian forces were 
pillaging the city and one of the captains raped Tim and Clea, who lived in the city at the time. And so after he raped her, he asked her, uh, he then tried to rob her, basically, and was like, where's the money in your house? And she was like, oh, it's uh, in the backyard. So c- follow me. And it's behind that well over there. So he goes to look behind the well, I guess. And then she just goes, boom. And he falls in and dies. So (laughs) I I think similar to the Judas story, like for a lot of women and probably for a lot of women who, you know, have been historically oppressed and or or like raped um, or just uh, lived a life where, yeah, they felt like they weren't able to. Uh, they weren't able to pursue whatever it is they wanted to like whatever reason it is very attractive to a lot of women (laughs) these types of stories so again this one um it is kind of an empowering story you know this guy rapes her and tries to rob her and she's like okay i'm gonna kill you uh and again this picture um like when i first saw this i laughed because it's just so funny i i didn't know i didn't know the story i'm not super familiar with my like greek and roman Mythologies. (laughs) Mythologies. <laughs> so I just saw a woman spreading a guy's leg apart and like it looks like she's about to rape him which is not funny women raping men is not funny that's not what I'm saying <laughs> but um but it's just like it the the his position his posture like I was like this like this is so funny like what is going on um so then I looked it up and and obviously f- found out, you know, she's about to throw him into the well. And um, and then I, I stopped laughing like when I saw the expression on the face of Tim and Clea because she looked like she's really pissed and she's just like, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, OK, this is not a funny story. Um, but just I think the way she depicted it um, is just it is a little bit humorous, at least the position of this guy. It's very um there's a lot of movement in this painting. Like you can see how he is right mid tumble, like in head first into this well. She has got one hand on either leg and she has clearly like flipped him over. So his legs are flailing in the air as he is about to go down. And so there is a lot of movement and action in this scene, which is really well depicted. And it's interesting too, because the background is so plain. There's kind of like a brown wall that's probably from another building and then there's a bit of black and gray in the background showing like some clouds or some other buildings but for the most part like it's very focused just tightly on these two people and like as we've talked about in the last two paintings like she still has a pretty stable expression like maybe not what you would expect from when you're murdering someone but there is this absolute edge to it. You can see in her face, like, not even anger, but just determination. Yeah, exactly. Um, And she did, um, so she did in this particular composition, she didn't invent it because obviously when she didn't invent the story, but she did study the engraving by Matthias Marion in 1630 that was a part of a book illustration of the same story. So again, it's, um, you know, a black and white engraving print of this woman. Uh, this one is actually even funnier looking because this guy's, the head is, you can't see the guy's head. It's completely in the well. All you see is his spread eagle legs and her grabbing it and or about to let go, I presume. And his hand is like, ah, and then she's looking directly at his crotch. And this one, she 
uh, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm looking at a low res image. It's a little bit harder to see her expression, but she, this one looks more, she's like, ah, ha, ha, bye. It, it's, it seems more like what her what her emotions are like so again like there's a bit of a difference uh, even though the composition is very similar um this one it's like okay like this is funny i'm gonna throw you in a well whereas uh, in sirani's depiction it is still kind of funny in terms of his position but it's more like i'm very pissed and you're gonna die there is a lot of violence to these images and it all works really well because of like using dark and bright colors with good contrast and like kind of the Baroque style of the time. Lots of reds in these kinds of paintings. And I mean, these depictions over and over again of violence that women are enacting on men. Obviously, of course, she had hundreds of paintings and lots of them are not about this. But this I think this is a big thing with historical paintings is because there are so few ways that women had been depicted at that time and were like allowed to be seen in art. And so, you know, you have the naked women, which is most of them, um, <laughs> and the naked women can do different things. And then you kind of have like queens and stuff. But in terms of actually like women being the center of a story that's being depicted like a lot of times those are like like biblical or other stories that have been mythologized of these assassinations or revenge or things like that and those are kind of the options that were on the table in terms of depicting women as people who had any kind of internal thought process and so this is what we end up with also i'm sure a lot of internalized rage <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean and to be fair i think um i don't know if this is just what artists decide to describe uh, but it does seem like also bible stories and like greek and roman mythology is full of violence oh my God, yeah. and anyway so it, you don't whether you're depicting men or women you don't have that much to choose from like i went to a rubens exhibition a while ago and I felt like 90 of his paintings are about rape or incest or murder, so which it probably is because he was depicting a lot of religious and Bible history. So, so you know, don't just think that women like Elisabetta have a lot of rage. Like, a lot of men do too, or maybe they don't, and this is just the material they have. <laughs> the Old Testament of the Bible is very violent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, a lot of it is... A lot of it is uh, off with the heads. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, again, so she, she did do a, also a lot of other work. And I think one of the most famous works she did, uh, or, or one of the most famous now is, um, so her virgin and child uh, portrait is now in the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., which I've always wanted to go see. Uh, but currently i cannot go to that country <laughs> <laughs> and i probably don't want to be near dc uh, so anyway and uh it actually it was also featured on the um usps um christmas holiday stamp in october of 1994 and it was also the first work done by a woman artist so support your post office buy an old postage stamp i guess nice <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pictorial. You can find our show notes at relay.fm slash pictorial. And you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at aspiringrobotfm. 
And you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at ArticulationsV. I'm also on YouTube at Articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we also upload these podcast episodes to YouTube under Pictorial Podcasts, where you can listen to our episode and look at the lovely images by Sarani on the screen while you listen. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts.